everybody. Welcome to another edition of Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And, and we we're have... here today with Nathan Smith. Uh, Nathan is an uh, interesting person. And uh, we decided we'd read his uh, biography to you because it is such an interesting biography. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read that. Nathan is a writer and YouTuber, as well as an undergraduate student in psychology at Texas State University. He is currently applying to graduate programs, fingers crossed, to become a psychotherapist. Nathan served a mission in California from 2013 to 2015, where he experienced some of the best and worst that the LDS Church had to offer. He returned home with PTSD and didn't open up about his experiences until 2018. Since then, he has written over 100 essays on Medium for a publication called Interfaith Now exploring his experiences and trying to, to identify some of the challenges he feels the modern LDS church faces. Though no longer a Latter-day Saint himself, Nathan still has a deep love for Mormonism and those who feel called to it. And as a student of psychology and a wannabe therapist, he's interested in helping people of any religious tradition or none whatsoever find the healthiest, most fulfilling version of their lives possible, whatever that may look like. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to join y'all. Yes, welcome. And I think we also need to add to that bio, why don't we mention the name of your wonderful new podcast? Oh, yes. Uh, so I am on YouTube as Mind Makes This World. Uh, I think I have about nine videos out now on just a very brief hiatus, but uh, I've got some more content that I'm working on that I'd like to to get out there. So you know, go and subscribe, please. <laughs> like please. and subscribe. That's yes. right. We all, those of us that are newer to YouTube and all of that, we need to always remember like and subscribe. That's what we're <laughs> supposed to say. So, uh, well, welcome. Well, we are just so excited. And I also want to mention that Nathan has been kind enough. He's going to come talk to our The Good Book Club um, members, which will probably happen before we even air this. But we just love it that Nathan is so willing to, to give back and to support and to talk to us and share his knowledge and his experiences. So I think we'll just, Landon, why don't we start with the first question for Nathan and we'll just jump right in. Sure. I will say I, I did watch your, I was watching your YouTube videos today um, from uh, Mind Makes This World. And I got to say, you're, you're brilliant. <laughs> some of some of the I, I was just following those going, wow, these are really scholarly. Uh, you, you really uh, know your stuff. And and we'll explain why here uh, as, as we get talking to him, uh, <laughs> get to that. Where, where he got this knowledge from. So I guess the first question is, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, about your growing up and where you grew up and, and how you got to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for the compliments, by the way. Y'all are too kind. Uh, so I was I was born in Houston, Texas. I only lived there a couple of years. I lived most of my life in Austin, Texas, and I was raised in a, you know, a very more or less traditional Mormon family, as traditional as they get outside of like the Mormon corridor. Um, I was, you know, raised through kind of just the uh, the basic milestones like eight. I was baptized 12. I became a deacon, teacher, priest. Um, 18, I was in the Melchizedek priesthood and then 19, I went on my mission. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, it's funny. It was, it was an interesting time growing up and basically what was the, the literal Texas shaped, but like belt buckle of the Bible belt. Cause, uh, you're surrounded by like very passionate evangelical Christians, Baptists, Protestants, of just all kinds and shapes and sizes. And, um, I grew up in a town where it was, um, 
when I was when I was much younger, it was much worse. There were there were churches that were very focused on trying to teach classes on how to proselytize to your Mormon friends, how to save them. And it was it was based on a lot of like that old school 19th century kind of crap. So it wasn't very intellectually engaging. It was just more like, do you know, the Mormons don't believe in the Bible. Did you know they worship Joseph? You know, stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, the church I went to was vandalized once it was just once, but you know, spray painting windows broken. They had to put up shrubs and stuff because the sandstone, it stained the sandstone. So there's still graffiti kind of faded there, but you know, um, it was an interesting time for sure. So I was that yeah. was that one of the first times that you recognized, oh my goodness, Mormons are not. I mean, were you fairly insulated from that, or was that something that made you go, wow, this is next level? Mormons are hated, or <laughs> well, I it's it's tough to say because I think it's just the water I swam in. I think I kind of always knew we were a little weird. Um, I I grew up with a, a best friend of mine who was like his parents were very Baptist, and uh, they were the type that loved to invite the missionaries in and you know have their little debates with oh. them. Yeah, I I remember this this friend of mine. He actually I think it was like probably right after I was eight. He uh, he and I were playing in his backyard, and he had this moment where he had to witness to me about how afraid he was that I don't have Jesus in my heart. And so I accepted Jesus into my heart right then and there with him. And it was about as spiritual as two eight-year-old boys in the backyard can really be. But uh, <laughs> you were making the effort. No, I relate to that yeah. because I had a friend that was a very, very staunch Baptist in high school. And one day, and I had, of course, a little posse of Mormon girls around me. And one day she <laughs> broke down in the lunchroom and we said, Cassie, what's wrong? She said, I just love you guys and you're all going to hell. I mean, that was very strange. <laughs> we all just kind of looked up because we didn't we didn't really understand that that's how it was viewed for other religions. And she said, yeah, my, my minister has told me that my friends are going to hell. And she was very sincere. I mean, she was absolutely sincerely concerned. And we, of course, didn't know what to think. So <laughs> she may have even been correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, OK, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's oh, funny. I um none of my siblings are are Mormon anymore. And uh, recently, I saw my uh, younger sister and oldest sister, and we were all having a joke and everything. And I think one of us had you know uh, used the Lord's name in vain. And we had a we had a moment where we were like, but it might be real though, so maybe just yeah. double back real quick. <laughs> Better safe than sorry, right? Just no, I case, think a right? lot of post Mormons <laughs> go through that where you're like, can yeah. I do this? Yeah. Is somebody watching me, so. Oh, oh wow. That is so interesting. Well, that sounds like an amazing growing up. And so you had older sisters, younger siblings. You were kind of right there in the middle of the family. Yeah. That's excellent. That's excellent. And so were you always interested in sort of like even younger as the, of the, were you interested in the scholarship of the church? I mean, most kids are like, whatever, but it sounded to me like some of the other things I've watched, you actually were very, you were thinking about it, even at a very young age and trying to understand. Yeah, I um I really don't know what kicked that off. I guess maybe it's just a very organic kind of thing that I felt drawn to. But at 13, I started reading just a bunch of, well, I, I guess the the baby's first Mormon scholarship starter kit, which is a lot of Cleon Skousen, apparently. Oh yeah. Um, I was raised on Skousen to the nth degree. Yes. My parents, I called them Skousenites. That's how bad, <laughs> not how bad, that's how interesting it was. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I learned a little bit, um, but I also had like a bishop who was, I think he was a research assistant for Hugh Nibley. So I got a lot of Hugh Nibley kind of thrown in there too. But um, I, I don't know. I just, I think that for me, 
it was exciting because it took what was just kind of like a background element of my life that was just kind of there and turned it into this like very real and engaging thing. Like it felt like, oh, Mormonism isn't just like the weird thing that I do on Sunday and my friend who can't read Harry Potter, like he thinks I'm we I'm the weird one for like it's it's a real deal like we're we're doing something my life is is concretely affected by this and so I wanted to know it as much in detail as I could um as much as like kind of that more conservative or even fundamentalist approach to Mormonism really can help you out <laughs> right so you were interested in the meat you were finding that in Skousen and Nibley and and at a very yeah. young age that's so interesting <laughs> Yeah, and that it, led you to uh, to eventually become an apologist at a very young age. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and how that came about. This story is incredible. I just... yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was, uh, it actually kind of starts when I was 16. So I, I had this like very interesting out of nowhere faith crisis, uh, uh, mostly centered on atonement theology and then like Mormon exclusivism. So like one true church rhetoric and stuff. And I just, I remember having this moment where I was sitting in a sacrament meeting, hearing about Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think to myself, like, even if I saw this as purely symbolic, I don't know what it would be symbolic of. This feels like kind of like a useless thing for me, but I don't know what to do with that. I'm, you know, a 16 year old boy and right. living in a more or less, you know, faithful Mormon household. Um, but so I, I dug into that a whole lot. So I started reading a lot of people, including like, uh, generally Christian writers like N.T. Wright is is still kind of one of my favorites. He's he's an interesting guy. There's a lot of ways I obviously nowadays would disagree with him, but uh, he he was a very thoughtful person. And I think he helped to to make Christianity, in fact, a lot more realistic for me in the same way that like Skousen kind of made mm -hmm. Mormonism more realistic for me. So I I started digging deeper and deeper into, I guess, what would have been like the issues surrounding Mormonism. And that drew me to what was at the time called Fair Mormon. Um, and I just, I, they had a, I don't know if they still have it, but they had two websites at the time. One was like a, a, a page for their conference talks. And at the time, at least some free books you could read, uh, just on the browser. And, uh, they had kind of a Wikipedia style, uh, website, which was like, here's a question or an issue. And here's like a whole wiki page with like even related pages and hyperlinks and everything, um, to like responses to that. And I found myself just diving down every possible rabbit hole I could find to the point that I, I saw a little link on one of their websites that said, hey, why don't you volunteer to answer emails that people send in? I had sent in a couple of my own and I thought, why not? That could be fun. So I did. And uh, I my application was lost the first time around. So I didn't get in uh, for a couple months. And then I wrote them. I was like, hey, um, can I join? And they're like, hey, yeah, we switched people. Uh, welcome aboard. And then the next day I woke up to like 100 emails in my inbox. So and they uh, never ask they never ask about your age. It was okay that you were I much, much younger. That was never an issue. I can't remember if they asked specifically for my age, but I don't think they were bothered by it, uh, right. if I remember correctly. Especially because I mean, you know, we it's it's a church that sends like now at least 18-year-old boys to it was uh, started by a 14-year-old boy. So yeah, yeah. yeah right, so you're right. They're definitely a youth culture. So yeah. oh my goodness. So Sorry, were were your responses reviewed by somebody or did you just go straight out and respond? Yeah, they so they um so once you had the application process in, that was pretty much like the primary vetting process. But once you were uh actually a, a person like a volunteer apologist, what would happen is you would receive like 
all the e all the emails that were sent in would be forwarded to everybody who is a volunteer apologist. And if you responded, you would preface your email every time by saying, hey, these are my reflections, my views. They don't necessarily reflect the views of either Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that kind of gave a little bit of plausible deniability if one of us went off the rails. Um, <laughs> And other people could see your responses and jump into and be like, hey, maybe I see this slightly differently or, hey, here's some resources that this person, you know, may not have noticed that you might find helpful, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Wow, what an environment. So you're not only getting questions, you're also learning from other apologists, all mm -hmm. delving into some of the same questions. And you're going back and forth with each other about what about this and that. And oh, then yes. you're helping people understand and feel comfortable with some of the rough issues. So wow, what a really intellectually dynamic time for somebody who's not even 18. That's incredible. Yeah, yes. What did your it parents think of you doing that? I'm just trying to picture my sons, you so know, they're all young adults now. I'm trying to picture my 16-year-old mom, I cannot vacuum. I am answering the Adam God question. For <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be so mad when I say this. I don't think they cared. Oh, they weren't impressed? That's the other thing I, I think, think you go, my son, the apologist, I mean. I don't think they understood what was kind right. of what I was kind of up to, but I also don't think like it, it's funny because I I'm not a hundred percent sure where y'all like grew up, but in in Texas I think that we uh I, I don't know it's not like Mormon identity is not really a point of pride for anyone to the yeah. point that like if you I mean I've grown up with people who are like I'm the distant great great grandson of yeah. this particular three named general authority sure, and everybody's like sure. I don't care like I've got work tomorrow morning like hours already um but yeah I, I i don't know if they they cared i remember my dad uh, at the time at least kind of seeing the academic side of things as almost like a waste of time which is kind of i think he's outgrown that but it was kind of that somewhat typical maybe anti-intellectual side of mormonism right. um and then i don't think my mom just really understood what i was up to i think they just knew i was alone in my room doing emails yeah. and you know doing emails that's so funny like their yeah. son you got to put this away can't you get a good video game that you can be addicted to come on well, I'm oh, to think what it would have been back in the day but yeah yeah it was you it were... wasn't the most shocking thing a 17 year old boy could be doing alone yeah. on a computer True. so it was i think they were okay with that <laughs> you were in a unique you were in a unique spot where you got to see especially you're kind of at the uh beginning time of a lot of people starting to have a faith crisis did you see a lot of emails over the time you were there did it increase fairly significantly what what was your feel as you watched it did you have a feeling that people were really starting to find out these issues and that's why they were going there or, or did did you have a feel for that at all uh you know that was a discussion we uh, we often had on that email list was at the time i don't know if the the people would be using this term anymore but at the time we called it inoculating the saints so there was this there was this sense in which like these issues were becoming way more prominent, way more obvious because, you know, Internet 2.0, we, you know, everyone's online. There's no real filter or anything. So uh, people get to see this information that at times was maybe just not known, at times was maybe just quietly disregarded. Um, and we wanted to prep people to be able to, uh, I guess, process that information when they first encountered it. So I, I don't know if I saw like a, an uptick in the emails necessarily because I think that we had kind of a feature that wasn't super popular as far as like emailing questions in. 
But I, I did get a sense, and I think a lot of people on the email list would definitely agree that we had this sense that there was kind of an uptick in, at the very least, questions and maybe even faith crises. Um, and we wanted to kind of address that as best we could. That's so interesting. Can you think of any particular questions that were becoming more and more, you know, like rising to the top, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the two, probably the two biggest ones were uh, LGBT issues and uh, plural marriage. Yeah. I I remember having um, some very interesting conversations with people about plural marriage. I remember I, I, I thought I was a very progressive person about this. And I, I think even to this day, I was still very progressive about it in the sense of like, hey, you know, find your answers, whatever it is. Good luck to you. And this person kept emailing back. No, you only are giving me the fair answers and the, the rote church answers. And I'm like, I'm not giving you any answers. If anything, I'm terribly unhelpful. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're accusing me of. But um, but yeah, it was it was plural marriage and, and LGBT plus issues, specifically um, issues related to sexual orientation. I think gender identity hadn't quite really reached mainstream. And what year are we talking thought. about? This would have been. I started in December 2011 and okay. I, I finished in March 2013. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Exactly was, right there in that time frame. I, yeah, I remember the most controversial thing I think I saw was some, I, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but there was a BYU student who made this very interesting presentation kind of in the aftermath of Prop 8 um, about uh, homosexuality and the gospel. And he was he was arguing essentially that he thinks that the presidents of the church and the apostles were mistaken in their views about it. And I remember at the time thinking that's such a, I, I can't go there yet. Like cognitively, I just, I can't process that idea just yet, but it was, it was definitely an interesting time for sure. How, how did the experience affect your own spirituality? Uh, it seems to me I heard, were you a believing strong believer at that time or did it cause you to struggle or how did it affect your own testimony having to deal with that? You know, funny enough, I don't think it actually affected me like in any negative way. I don't re recall having any like crises of faith while I was with Fair Mormon. I think it was such an incremental shift for me. But by the time I left on my mission, I had had kind of an atheist phase, um, a closeted atheist phase uh, that Fair didn't need to know about at the time. Um, uh, but, was that uh, the result I, of Fair or was that just something, some other things that you were delving into when she left Fair? You know, it's it's funny. I um, I was never the issues that always bothered me were never historical stuff. Like I, I really didn't have a hard time processing that Joseph Smith might have been a pervert, or like that you know that you know we were racist in a in a very recent past, or even in a present. Like for some reason that didn't not bother me, but like that didn't shake me. I had an easy time engaging the church as a human institution. But I think for me, the things that really like bugged me were existential stuff. Like, I don't I don't really understand Jesus. I'm not really 100 percent sure how to make sense of like why he would even exist in the first place. Um, there, There's and there's some philosophical issues there. Nowadays, I, I kind of get the idea a little bit more. I understand, you know, the role that that plays, um, even just in things like emotional regulation for some folks. Um, but. I, at the time, I was just like, I don't really get this guy, and I'm not 100% sure what you even mean when you use the word God. So, like, it, my head was kind of in that weird space. But so by the time... thinking about the big while, questions. Yeah, were you an atheist while working for FAIR? Yes. Yes. Briefly. Briefly. I had a I had a brief moment, and I think um, I, 
I can't fully understand what it really was. I think it probably centered a little bit on like things like the problem of evil and suffering. And, you know, people have philosophically satisfying, you know, responses to the problem of evil and suffering, but like, it's, it's still a very cruel and interesting world. And I don't, I don't know if sometimes we, we fully take that into account sometimes, but um, I think that was probably a big part of what kind of pushed me in that direction. But by the time I left, and I only left because I was going on my mission, in fact, um, I was I was probably much closer to like Terrell Givens, Terrell and Fiona Givens, right? as far as like belief. So very nuanced, very progressive, very um, flexible. But I there were a lot of things I also hadn't really thought about. Like um, I would like to think that I was at least pleasant about my views on like LGBT plus people. Um, but I think that's something I never really thought about. And it wasn't really an issue that came to the forefront for me, at least until after my mission um, or even like women in the priesthood. I think I was probably right. a lo lot more progressive about that. I, I liked ordain women, even if uh, I was maybe still kind of slightly conservative and very male about it sometimes. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that, you know, Terrell and Fiona Givens are probably, probably a good touchstone for where I was at by the time I left. Yeah, that's great. So we'll move on to your mission in a second, but I wanted to um, ask you, you had mentioned that you had interacted with some other more notable uh, apologists who may have found their way uh, a different path uh, in more current years. Can you talk yeah. about that or is it too Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's only spicy, I think, to the Mormon adjacent world. That's so, right. You know. Well, we want spicy. No. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the here's the leaked documents. Um, That's it. Oh my god! Get oh ready, everybody. <laughs> Funny enough, actually, I I did go back to my old email address to see uh, if I could find my old fair emails because um, I don't think they ever removed me from the list. So I think I was still receiving emails for a couple of years. But apparently, Yahoo uh, deletes all of your stuff if you don't log in for like three years. So fun. But um, yeah, so I I actually I got a chance to see I think a lot of people who are I don't know. I don't know if the proper term would be like bigger names, but you know, people kind of at the beginning of their 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 development, um, whatever approach to Mormonism they might have. Like I, I had the opportunity to to become friends with uh, a couple of folks that uh, are now a big part of the of Book of Mormon Central. Um, I knew Stephen Smoot before he had his his blog Plony Alimony. I think that's how you pronounce it. Very sorry, Stephen, if you ever see this. Um, and then I, I also got to meet Bill Real, actually. I'm I'm 120% sure he doesn't remember me, but um, I I got to hear his first interview with John DeLynn on Mormon Stories when he was a bishop at the time. And I remember it was a very, all I remember is it was a very, very heated discussion centered on um, gay people specifically. And then shortly after, Bill actually joined our email list. And I remember just sort of watching him, you know, be one of the volunteer apologists like myself. I don't think we really interacted or anything. Like I said, he probably would never remember me anyway. But uh, and then when I came back from my mission I, back in 2015, I had heard that I guess I think that might have been the very beginning of Mormon discussions. Um, so I was just like, wow, I've, I've missed a lot. <laughs> um, you missed but, a lot. Uh, you got to catch up. So we'll, yeah. we'll make sure we send this to Bill with a little timestamp of where we discussed <laughs> his past. So. Yeah, for the record, there Bill, were some you're a other man. Yeah. <laughs> and then there were some others, I think you said, was it, um, who did yeah, you um, I think, uh, I, I'm not sure if he, his name is well known, Neil Rapley, he's, he's a big part of more, uh, Book of Mormon Central, if I remember okay. correctly, he was a very nice guy, and then, um, I, I got to meet Jackson Washburn through some mutual friends in FAIR, 
um, after I came back from my mission. I think I actually, I think I might've met Jackson prior to his mission. Um, but you know, we have an acquaintanceship. He knows, he knows me, but he, you know, we weren't like having, um, I was going to say having coffee, but having like hot chocolate on the, the weekends or <laughs> something. Cocoa. Yeah. Having cocoa. Um, but yeah, you yeah. You were I a guess... mover and shaker. You were a well, mover and shaker at fair. Well, and other... <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, I actually, I, I was definitely not a mover or shaker. I just was kind of the, this is a weird analogy, but I feel like I was the forest gump of Mormonism for a half second there. Um, there's our title, you... Landon. There's our yeah. title. Of the <laughs> the forest gump of Mormonism. God, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you know how that that movie worked, where he just like he meets like Kennedy yeah. or Nixon. He's like in the Vietnam War, and like no one really remembers his name, but he's just like been there for a lot of stuff. I I feel like I just met so many people who dove in so many different directions, and I still feel it today. I feel like I'm kind of in the the background, and I I kind of like that personally. I, I I'm not really a a forefront, you know, face in 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 front of everybody kind of guy, but. It's it's been interesting because I've just had a chance to see a lot of stuff in the background, stuff that people don't see, um, and I think it humanized a, like the whole spectrum of Mormon and Mormon adjacent like stuff I, that I've I've been able to encounter. Like I've met uh, Don Bradley, I've met um, uh, Dan Peterson, I've also met John DeLynn. Like my my oldest sister and her husband were friends with him at one point up in Logan when they were doing the uh, Oasis project still. But wasn't um, he from Texas too? Didn't he yes. grow up in Texas? Yeah. Texas, yeah. Right? He's also impossibly tall in real life. But I'm also like <laughs> much taller than I ever imagined. I yeah. had interacted with him a lot before I actually met him. And I met him at an event. I'm like, oh my God. Because you know, when you interact with people online, you you don't know. Sometimes yeah. they're much shorter. And in his case, he was much taller. Yeah, oh, well, and in my case, I'm I'm the guy who genuinely thought he was five ten, only to find that I think I'm about like five eight at best. <laughs> like so, um, yeah. So you're a 19 year old atheist apologist, and you do what every 19 year old atheist apologist does, and you go on a mission. Tell us yeah. <laughs> how that transformation. How did occurred. that happen? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I I definitely had a, a very strong testimony at that point. Uh, but it was, again, it was kind of more like, it was a mishmash of Terrell Givens and N.T. Wright. So the way that I really rationalized it in my mind was I I just dropped the Mormon exclusivism altogether. I didn't really care about the one true church thing. I sort of like turned Mormonism in my mind as like a symbolic sort of expression of this cosmic narrative everyone's already involved in. So it's not like, you think of like the temple narrative, like the, you didn't have to earn your way into having been in the pre-existence. You didn't really have to earn your way or like ritualize your way into being born in this world. And I sort of thought the same thing about like the three degrees of glory and stuff. The thing that really, that I really focused on came from N.T. Wright, which was this idea that like Christianity was meant to better the world. So there's this, um, the, the, his, his analogy was the book of Acts where it begins with uh, Jesus sort of handing off this kingdom work to his disciples. And the first thing they do is they have Pentecost, where all these barriers are breaking down between people. Um, and it, it progress progresses where this, this uh, message of good news and no longer having to be hostile toward your fellow human beings spreads further and further until you get to this point where Paul is under the Roman emperor's own nose testifying about Christ and how he's Lord and Caesar is not. And uh, the book of Acts doesn't have an ending. And the way N.T. Wright interpreted that was because you are the next chapter if you're supposed to be a disciple of Christ. Um, and so that that was a big motivation for me as a missionary was as uh, 
I guess this is my concrete way of going about that. And uh, I found very quickly that that was a very unpopular explanation for why you're on your mission. <laughs> I'm sure half the people didn't even understand what you were talking about oh, when you brought up the Romans, yeah. Paul, Acts, and the Pentecost. <laughs> I Yeah, the, the, the Bible's already got an interesting mix of opinions from certain yeah. missionaries. So it was, you know, where's the Book of Mormon fit into that? What's wrong with you? Like that kind of thing. Exactly. Where's the church? Where's um, the church? So where yeah, did you yeah. where did you serve then? I was in the California Fresno mission, which has since split in half. I think it's now the Fresno and Modesto mission, but we had like the whole San Joaquin Valley. So oh, wow. we had Modesto, we had the Yosemite National Park, all of Fresno. We had a bunch of vineyards that the church owns to create raisins. Um, I I love. That's I actually what got they to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I, I worked in those those vineyards, actually, probably in a slightly questionable amount of uh, free labor. But uh, I, I actually really enjoyed it, mostly because I, I was not a fan of proselytizing. I, I just it I've never enjoyed that part of my missionary my mission. Uh, I, it, it was the hardest thing to try to explain to other missionaries that like, hey, I really don't like the sales portion of uh, of this whole thing. I'd rather be a humanitarian and uh, cutting grapes off of a off of a berm was probably one of the funner things I got to do. But you were uh, literally I, laboring in the vineyard. I mean, yes. that's incredible. Like, <laughs> in the Lord's vineyard. Really <laughs> yeah, like there you go. Yeah, I, I learned oh. a lot about it. Well, it so was, you definitely had a different point of view and a different way of seeing things from the other missionaries and your mission president. I mean, maybe how talk about that maybe a little bit, just the whole mm -hmm. dynamic there, because... Yeah, absolutely. So um, my first, I had two mission presidents. One was Larry Gelwicks, who's a very famous rugby coach from Utah. Uh, very oh, accomplished. I live. Yes. Very close. Yes. I know exactly who you're talking about. How interesting. Yeah. He's, he's a great guy. Um, I, I know he's had complicated relationships with a few other missionaries, and I'm sure if we got to know each other better uh, during the time that I had him as my president, we probably would have had a little more complicated relationship as well, but he was, he was, he was a good man. I think he kind of sensed that I was just kind of a square peg in a round hole and I was just trying to do my thing. And I think he, he kind of just didn't want to, didn't want to make life worse for me in some ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it was my second mission president, however, that I, I had the most conflict with, unfortunately. Um, I think that kind of the, the through line for a lot of conflict I had with my second mission president, with a lot of mission leaders, um, and with uh, a lot of missionaries in general was just like this, it was a mix of misunderstanding, uh, a lot of, quite frankly, just bullying, if we can be honest here at this point. Yeah. I mean, shocking yeah. that a bunch of 18 to 20 something boys would be bullies sometimes, but you know, we tracked high school in with us. Um, That's and a reality. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, and, and it, it's a reality that you get when you have young men, especially who have perhaps mental or even psychiatric disorders that aren't being diagnosed. I was with a, an elder for six weeks. Um, that was that was the darkest six weeks of my entire life. He was my district leader. He uh, he uh, I I was suicidal when I was with him and I've been open about that before. But I was you know, that was that was a struggle I had, um, which should probably explain just how fun of a guy he was. But the two companions I had prior to him, the one immediately prior to him, was sent in to sort of clean up the area that I was supposedly failing to baptize in, even though this area had not seen a baptism in like a couple of years since I even got there. 
but it's um, on you. Yes, yeah, you're it, the and, one, and, and you failed. Oh, dear. well, and within half a week of knowing me, that previous companion um, reported me to the mission president as not working. I was being lazy. Um, everything to the point that my my second mission president sent me an email out of nowhere saying, essentially, you I don't think you have a testimony. I don't think you're converted. I I sent it to my dad, and we had a very quick back and forth trying to draft up a response to that email, shaving away each other's profanity. <laughs> it was not a nice email. Blankety blank, blank, blank. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, kind of like, I, I'm not sure what the threshold of language is here for your podcast. I definitely don't want to get you guys demonetized. But oh, no, it you can say whatever you want. Well, I wanted him to go fuck himself. Like he, <laughs> like he. In the nicest way possible. Yes. In the rudest way possible. I, I was very much a kind of a tit for tat kind of guy. I mean, it's right. that, that Texas, Texas individualism, I think too, where it's like, you, you know, act up, get snatched up, you know? Um, I don't care if you're my mission president. You don't you don't get to talk to me like that. I don't talk to you like that. Um, and your dad agreed. Your dad oh, found the letter to be offensive and he yeah. was on board with you. Okay. So this is, a, this is a very interesting point in my mission because, so I had a string of three companions. The last one was the one I was most suicidal with. The second one is the one I'm kind of describing. I was with him at the time of this email. And uh, the third one prior to that, we just didn't work very well. Very, very different personalities. He was kind of, you know, born and raised in Utah. He didn't really think about Mormonism too much. It was just kind of the thing he did. And I don't think he really wanted to be bothered with it, which is, you know, fair enough. We ended as business partners, essentially. Um, but it was a rough one. And then so this second companion came in, reported me to the mission president as supposedly being the busted leg of the entire mission. Um, and I I was sent two zone leaders, uh, one of whom I had seen get trained and one of whom was a very, very good friend of mine. Um, they came into our area shortly after this email when I thought everything was settled because I didn't get a reply from my mission president. I just got his weekly email right after that saying, here's my my spiritual thought for the week. And I was like, I got a couple thoughts for you, but um, they're not very spiritual. Uh, but I figured everything was done. So these two zone leaders, though, came into my little podunk area in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we had a, a district lunch at Taco Bell. And they're like, hey, Elder Smith and Elder so-and-so, let's go back to your apartment and just hang out for a little bit. I was like, cool, I get to hang with my friends, neat. Um, so we get into my apartment, the door closes and they say, hey, the real reason we're here is because we've been told to come and interview you, Elder Smith, uh, me. Um, mission president basically sent them to give me a worthiness interview. So I was asked essentially all the baptismal questions with a lot of footnotes and asterisks to make 100% sure of what I was actually saying. Um, it was the scariest, one of the scariest times on my mission. I had a rifle pointed at my head on my mission. That, that was probably a little scarier, but um, this was probably one of the most spiritually unnerving moments of my entire life because I, I felt, I thought I was going to be excommunicated. Like for real, I thought I was going to be like kicked out of the church for a minute there. I, I was... I didn't know my other companion had essentially made this accusation in the first place. So he's just sitting there with me. I, I don't know that he's the reason this whole thing happened. Um, and I'm getting asked these questions like, do you believe we have the priesthood? What does that mean? Do you believe that uh, the prophet is you know, authorized to receive revelation of the mind and will of God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I remember being very, very angry and also in a desperate need to use the bathroom several times because I had been drinking <laughs> a lot of a lot at the uh, Taco Bell, which was good because it gave me a concrete moment to be like, hey, I need to step out of the room for a minute. You know why? 
and it gave me a chance to breathe. Um, and they and let it, you use the bathroom. Yeah, I was going to say that's absolutely an atrocity. Yeah. If they're not even letting you use the bathroom in their yeah, crib. yeah. It's like that the mission one, president set the Danites after you or something. This is oh my god. Yeah, gosh. well, I mean, so he sorry. had he had some interesting influence on people. Uh, I've I've and I've I've since spoken with those two missionaries. One of them at least apologized to me. Um, he he really did a lot to advocate for me, and I think that especially at this perspective, I think I understand that he was just in a he was in a losing game. That the only way for him to step out of it was essentially to leave his mission. So. Um, it's understandable. But I remember in that time, I, I channeled a lot of Mormon stories and a lot of Mormon matters with Dan Witherspoon, because I listened to a, especially a lot of Dan's podcast, because yeah, Dan I, is awesome. Yeah, Dan he's lovely. I, I, I'm, I was a big fan of Dan. I think that he's wonderful. Um, I got to find a lot of interesting people through him. But I remember at the time as a kid, I was I was enamored with this idea of being kind of a, a again, kind of a mover and shaker in the church. And obviously that dream was dying really quickly. But um, I, I remember as a kid, I would imagine myself being interviewed. And so I gave my interview answers. I was like, how would you respond if Dan asked you that question? So I was able, suddenly I was able to talk calmly and I was able to speak in kind of a nuanced way. I also lied a few times. Um, I mean, what do you want from me? I was a scared 20 year old, I think at the time, maybe 21, but uh even even the lies that I told at that time were not even like that desperate of lies. They were just more like, you're not going to take the Terrell Givens answer. You want the Bruce R. McConkie answer. So here's the Bruce R. McConkie answer. And now you're happy and everybody can move on. Them out, whatever they need. Yeah. Right. And you knew how to gauge it. Oh, my goodness. What news yeah. is as, a, as a psychotherapist or or, or pretend or future psychotherapist. Yeah. You're, you're the guy here who needs to name that mental state that missionaries end up in when they go on a mission. I mean, it happens to, you, you just see a large percentage, I'd, I'd guess 70% uh, end up with with some sort of a, an issue or or they come home or depression. Uh, it almost needs an, its own name. So that's my challenge to you is to, to, to find that and name it. <laughs> I uh, I will have to work on that. I you know it's it's funny. I um I it's uh I I'm a big fan of psychoanalysis. It's a it's a slightly controversial field, but I I found that that actually helped me make sense of a lot of my experiences. I I think that for especially missionaries, but for a lot of Latter Day Saints in general, um the the center of Mormonism is not, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I mean this in a purely neutral way. I don't think the center, the central concern of Mormonism for these folks is truth. I think truth is a means to an end, and I think the the central, the 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 ultimate concern for them is capital A authority, which leads to security. So for them, I think Mormonism is not so much what is, but what should you be. And if you're going to have someone articulate to you what you should be then they need to be reliable. They need to be authoritative. And hence, we get behaviors where people are very, um, at the very least, anxious if you start to maybe poke holes in the the idea that this authority figure is not, we, we won't say infallible, but they will be functionally infallible in the sense that, you know, I mean, we all know that President Russell M. Nelson's just a human being, but God help you if you actually point out a problem he's actually caused. Like, we we love to point out like oh yes well you know we were we were racist in the past but if you point out any racism now that's when we start to 
tug our collars because it disrupts that experience of having a reliable authority figure tell you all the things you should do in order to escape what you're trying to get away from, which at times is often just like things you can't control. It could be economic issues. It could be mm -hmm. depression and anxiety. It could be self-loathing. It could be estrangement from your family, your loved ones, a feeling of isolation. It could be all kinds of things. And it, it just kind of gets pulled into this this structure of what I would call unearned authority. And I think that the thing that disrupted my mission the most was I sort of, I, this is such a cringy way to put it, but I feel like I saw the emperor's new clothes for what they were. And people, whether they realized that or not, were not happy with me about that. And they took it out on me. Oh, yeah. You saw behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz, you knew. So yeah, but that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Just the whole focus, such an incredible focus on obedience. You need to have yes. that, to have that authority figure well, and you yeah yeah it absolutely it sorry OB, me, yeah that we're like it reminds me of a, a we went to a discussion um with maxine hanks mm -hmm. and she said something so interesting she said i never ever gave my authority away to the church that mm -hmm. why that's it was okay whatever they did to me whatever happened i was okay because i never i never gave my personal authority the way you know to them which is so interesting because I I, would th I think the mission is probably all about that. You give everything up, right? <laughs> you yes. give it all to the mission and to the obedience and to the authority figure, which makes you so vulnerable if you really do do that. So yeah, did you pass like, that interview? <laughs> I, I like this term, unearned authority. Yeah. Unearned mm. authority. I, I guess they earned it because they lived outlived everybody else, but that's <laughs> the only... Uh, well, and, seems to be the only qualification. <laughs> well, and I think it's why it's such a desperate emphasis. Well, maybe not desperate, a, a, a firm emphasis, let's say. I want to be as neutral as I can be, because right. I, I think Mormonism can survive without this part of it, by the way. And, and this was one of the reasons I think I saw through it so quickly was because it, for me, it just wasn't a concern. Um, so I was always surprised when people are like, what do you care if we stayed up past 1031 p.m.? You know, like, why do you think the cosmic shotgun is aimed at us now? Like, calm down. Um, and I didn't understand at the time. But I, I think that that this is kind of one of the reasons why the Nelson administration is so emphatic about prophets only teach you the truth. And this is the mind and will of God, especially in a really turbulent set of changes for, for the administration, whether it's something as simple as finally equalizing, you know, gender dynamics in the temple or something as dynamic and interesting but we'll see where it goes as like donating to organizations that help lgbt plus people or working with the naacp mm -hmm. um it's it it it's a it's a time of transition we'll see how far the church actually transitions quite frankly but it's the way that you stabilize the church during that transition is i think you emphasize like yep you know this is god doing the actions this is this is the capital a authority figure you don't need to question it you can just trust it it's fine because the moment you start to ask, like, okay, is this the right decision? Or how do I actually feel about this is the moment that you have to reintroduce that anxiety of uncertainty. Very yep, interesting. I absolutely agree. No, that really is. So so you passed your interview, I'm guessing, uh, with yeah, the Danites that came. And you did you complete your entire mission then, even though the circumstances were absolutely so difficult for you? Yeah, I... Um, so I did complete my mission. I, I passed to the I passed the interview, I would say probably with a B minus, uh, maybe a <laughs> solid B, I don't know. But uh, I remember having a, a chat with one of the zone leaders afterward, like a week afterward, because I, I was 
as you might imagine, kind of curious, because for some reason, the second mission president had a way of sending the Danites and then never sending a, a verdict uh, as to what what his... Left to hanging. Yeah, I mean, and I, I made his... I Like when I sent that email to him and I very respectfully said, hey, I think you've been misinformed. I'd love to talk with you and see if maybe we can clear this up. I would kindly suggest maybe not sending such a sudden email to someone that you haven't actually met yet. Mm. Um, I'm sure he loved that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I remember talking to this zone leader and he he told me that I was now off the president's radar, which essentially meant I just wasn't going to have zone leaders knocking on my door anymore. He was still very aware of me and probably quite wary of me, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, so after that, I only had, I think, three transfers left. So I was I was told in a private interview by my second mission president while I was with my third just awful companion um, and I was suicidal. I So during that time, I actually, I, I borrowed a cell phone from another set of missionaries because I didn't want to see my, my companion to see I had made this call. And I called the mission president's wife. Because when you're a missionary, I don't know if it's still this way. There's fortunately some more mental health resources than there used to be. Um, still a little thin, but uh, at the time it was, you call the mission president's wife if you're depressed or anxious because something, something feminine touch, something, something, I don't know. But uh, so I called her and I told her, hey, um, I might be about to hurt myself. Uh, can we chat? Uh, so I left her that voicemail. Uh, I got a call back later that evening and she essentially, she gave me, the, I don't want to shame her, but she gave me the best advice I think she knew to give. And it was unfortunately not very helpful. Uh, but she asked me, can you survive two more weeks, which was however long we had left of that transfer. Um, and I was like, I, I guess, I, I guess. Um, but I, I went to this, I went to my mission president uh, because he he said, hey, I, I emailed him as well. And he said, look, I'm doing an area set of interviews. We can just talk then. I was like, cool, thanks. Glad you could pencil me in. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I I talked to my older sister about this and she said, you really should have made a bigger scene. Um, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, but who knows? But so was I, I this talked the to first him. time you'd been suicidal in your life, or had this yes. been something that you'd experienced before? Or do you attribute it to the mission itself that made you that way? It was a hundred percent time on my mission. At, at worst, I was a socially anxious kid at times in high school, and that's about it. Um, never since then have I even really considered that sort of thing, even. It was that if that contextualizes it a little bit, because I I wasn't I wasn't prone to this sort of thing. I didn't have a history of suicidal ideation, um, and I I actually still don't, uh, which should probably tell you about the circumstances I was in, unfortunately. But I I so I talked with this mission president, and I told him about the the things that were going on, and he he told me that this was something he had been hearing about this missionary way too much. So apparently I was not the only one complaining, um, and yet he was still a district leader. So he told me, um, in two weeks when the transfer happens, I'll remove him from the area, you'll stay there. So in two weeks, we got the transfer calls and I was removed from the area, taken down to the very edge of the mission um, and doubled into a teeny tiny area with another missionary who was also about to leave. Um, or, or rather, I had, a, I had a, someone who was just out of training for one transfer and then two transfers, I believe, with someone who was also gonna leave at the same time that I did. Um, so I, I basically got told one thing and was given another thing, but I remember the ride down away from that area, away from that missionary being probably one of the giddiest times of my life. Uh, you know, I was just happy to be gone. 
yeah i was just i was just happy to be away it was it was one of the most abusive relationships i've ever had in my entire life and he was just like some 18 year old jackass like <laughs> you know like he doesn't have that much power but we play this interesting game with each other especially when we insert authority into the situation and obedience and what you should be and who you're supposed to trust and obey and yeah it, it made a bad uh, a bad situation so it wasn't until a transfer after i left that he was removed from being a district leader um i spoke actually to a missionary who was a good friend of mine at that time who kind of helped me get the cell phone that i needed to make the call and everything um and he said he told me at least that when i left it became a lot more apparent what this missionary was doing um because he just it got harder and harder to hide something I, I don't know if he was like sociopathic. I think he had a difficulty registering distress in other people, which mm -hmm. is a, a pretty, you know, antisocial personality disorder kind of trait. But um, one of the things about that is that people kind of think that, oh, these, you know, these psychotic people, they, these psychopathic people, rather, they occupy these positions of authority and they never get questioned and they just had to claw their way to the top and no one can ever take them down. The actual truth is that when you're like that, you don't get to stay anywhere long because people start to see through you pretty quickly. And I think people saw through him. He was removed from being a district leader and I tried to play it off as just, well, I was tired of it. I didn't want to lead. I just wanted to be back on the streets and apparently no one believed him. <laughs> the streets of the mission. No, and I yeah, can tell yeah. you, unfortunately, that this still goes on. My son has been on his mission since October and he's already had an experience just like yours, mm -hmm. first out of the gate and same thing. He was transferred and is now in a teeny tiny little, I mean, it's literally unfolding and he's only at the very beginning. So I'm sure many people listening or watching can understand these experiences, but you did make, you served you honorably, right? That's what everyone's getting for, going for. Yeah, I got and the two years. Made it and you came home and yet the experiences, the shadows from your mission followed you. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I think so many can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of my one of my first weeks home um when i gave i think my homecoming talk uh i i remember i was in gosh it was either the second hour or elders quorum back when there was still three hours of service um and i remember the elders in in the ward of my parents were that you know that my that were serving in my parents ward you know they, they came to meet the rm why not you know um and i remember seeing them they just sat down right in front of us and i couldn't breathe I felt like I felt like there was just this like pressure sitting on my chest. I felt so defensive against these boys that I had never even spoken to before. And I was just scared and I didn't understand it um, at all. I didn't know what was happening to me. I knew that I had had a horrible experience as a missionary. I just didn't understand why this was happening because I was home. I was released. It was fine. Right. Um, but I guess it, had, you know, it had traumatized me that's how trauma works you know you see a stimulus that matches something like the circumstances that characterized your initial traumatic experience and your mind and your body start to respond in the exact same way they did before all those unprocessed emotions and physical sensations come back up again um and I, I i like to tell people too that was actually a good way of knowing i was healing too because i remember when i lived in provo i did a brief brief stint at byu uh but when i lived in provo I, I ran into a couple elders on the street corner when I was on my way to the post office. And I just looked at them. They looked at me. I said, hey, how's it going? They said, hey. And they went on their way. I went on mine and I didn't feel a thing. And it was um, 
it was a good sign, but it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of PTSD that I honestly just didn't realize was there. Um, and honestly, I had to kind of deal with it on my own. I was fortunate that I had, um, two marriage and family therapists in my, my family at the time, my brother-in-law and my, my oldest sister, uh, she was completing her master's at BYU in, in, in marriage and family therapy. Him, he was competing, completing his PhD there in the same field. Um, and I remember, in fact, when I was with my companion with whom I was suicidal, she sent me an email. Uh, the first email, weekly email I sent them when I was with that companion shocked her into writing me for the one of the first times in my entire two years. Like we didn't, not because we were estranged from each other, just ADHD and undiagnosed ADHD, I guess. But uh, she sent me an email and she said, you sound like a battered spouse and I need you to request an emergency transfer. Like she told me, I, I, I'm a mental health professional in training. If you want to cite me on anything, like you, you need an emergency transfer. And I wrote a resignation letter to my mission president, like telling him I want to go home and I'm done. Um, and I kept it in my pocket for a week. It had an envelope. It was addressed. It was stamped. It was ready to go. Um, and I never sent it. Uh, and I don't know. I think I'm glad I didn't send it. But uh, I, I, that was kind of the only resource I had was was some a couple family members who were therapists who could never be my therapist, of course, for uh, ethical reasons. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I, for the most part, I just had to deal with it on my own. So you looked for and found your own solutions, sort of, once you recognized what this was. Because I, th I would think that would be interesting to go, why do I feel so strange? Why am I yeah. so upset? What is this? And then recognize, oh, my goodness, it's supposed to be the best two years of your life. Literally, when you recognize what happened to you there, and then you're searching for ways that you can heal from that. So maybe talk about that, because I think that part of your journey is really interesting and it's so beneficial to others, the things that you've learned and even choosing your, had you imagined that you would go into the field that you went into before this, or did this really open the door to all of that? I'm so curious about that. I think, um, I think I didn't even dream of becoming a therapist, to be honest, until relatively recently. At the time, I wanted to write big books on Mormon thought and history, and I wanted to be very profound. And, you know, I wanted to be the mover and shaker. Uh, and and that dream hadn't quite died just yet at that point. Um, or I should say it hadn't evolved yet. I feel like I feel like a lot of that I've taken into wanting to be a therapist. But um, at the time, I just for some reason, I was lucky enough to run into these little sound bites and clips from a, a philosopher named Alan Watts. He was a British American philosopher. He used to be an Anglican priest um, and he did a lot to popularize in the 60s and I think 70s um, Eastern thought in general. So Hinduism, yoga, Tantra, Zen, Taoism, all of it. And he had these audio recordings where he just did a lot of lectures before he died and people would set them to nice music and good stock footage. And I remember for hours, I would just watch these like two to four minute clips listening to him talk about like this, this, this way you could relate to the world. And like the problem that you have is this thing called ego. And, and there's a deep down layer of yourself you've never met before. And it all sounded like gibberish at the time. For some reason, it just like really caught my attention. I remember I was, um, I think one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've ever had in my life, even to this day, I was reading about the ego and I didn't know what that word really meant. Like I knew like, oh, the self is an illusion, all those fun catchphrases. I don't get it. Um, and I remember I was in Provo in my little apartment and I was in my room and I was kneeling down doing my evening prayers before I was going to bed. And um, 
I was thinking to myself, like I, my prayer just sort of stopped. And I thought like, suddenly I thought to myself, everything you think about yourself is too small. Like you are much bigger than everything you have ever thought about yourself. And suddenly I realized that that was what the ego was, was ego is just everything you think about yourself and realizing it's an illusion. It just means that you realize that you are much more complicated than anything you could ever say about yourself or think about yourself. And for some reason that made me weep, like just deeply. Like, I, I think I recognized that there really was a me that I had never met before. And I think that was the me that was agonizing every time I ran into missionaries, or it was the me that would get like anxious being invited to a YSA or angry with a bishop at a YSA who says my previous YSA bishop didn't know me. So are you following the commandments or things like that? You know, like I was I was suffering and I didn't even know it. And I think that recognizing, you know, what the the ego was essentially, what people meant when they were trying to say this sort of thing really uh, opened me up to that. Um, meditation ended up becoming a natural sort of uh, thing from there. I, I just mostly was into mindfulness at the time initially, just sitting quietly with yourself and like, you know, trying to trying to bring your mind down just a little bit, try, trying to calm your body down just a little bit and seeing what comes up. And I remember those first sessions, I would just weep. Like I would be there for a couple minutes and then just something would come up. It was like vomiting from food poisoning. Like there was this thing inside of me and I, there was only one way to get it out. And I was never letting myself do that until I, I took my conscious mind and just quieted it down as much as I could at the time. Um, and I remember I had like six months after that, just solid six months as if I had taken a dose of DMT or something that I was just like, not a single thought bothered me. Not a single thing messed with my emotional equanimity. And that faded over time, obviously, but it was such an impactful moment for me that I just, it dramatically changed me and it made me realize there was a way that I could live my life differently. And you were still, you were in the church at this point off your mission and you were healing what was the, the relationship between your continued healing and how you were starting to feel about the church? Was there a little give and take between that or were you still solidly in or how did that work? Well, uh, ever since my time with Fair Mormon, I, I stopped seeing the church as a father figure and more as a sibling. So there was always this this kind of disconnect between us. I, I never really felt uncomfortable seeing the church as human. Like we make mistakes, but you know, you should also acknowledge those mistakes because mistakes have concrete consequences in the lives of people. But when you're when you're essentially when you're essentially masquerading as an institution that either doesn't make mistakes or mistakes are, you know, the the exception to an otherwise very firm rule. So why why bother addressing them in the first place? You get you get injuries, unfortunately. Um, but so I, I never really had a hard time disconnecting from the church in that way. I think that um, I gradually drifted away and just became inactive. I, uh, When I was at BYU, I tried the YSAs. My first roommates were very kind. They carpooled with me. Uh, I went every week. I noticed that uh, I had a hard time talking to people. For some reason, people didn't really feel drawn to talk to me either. I, I think it's a mix of being in your 20s, being college students, being kind of cliquish, and also I was just awkward. Um, but then I, I got to my second ward. That was the bishop that asked if I was following the commandments right after it's hearing. He's like, I, he told me, he called my previous YSA bishop who I'd never met in my entire life because it was just at BYU YSA. Like 
everyone's moving in and out. There were hundreds right. of kids in that ward right. every Sunday. I was like, oh, he didn't hear about me, huh? Did you hear the Pope's Catholic too? Like, what did you expect? Like, um, but anyway, I that was, I think for me, that was kind of the last straw where I was like, I don't get anything out of church. I haven't gotten anything out of church since I was a teenager. Like, I've never enjoyed this. I've always enjoyed Mormonism and always hated going to church. So I'm going to stop. So I did. Um, and then I, uh, I moved back to Austin, back to Texas, uh, still inactive. I had a moment where I tried to go uh, try again at my family's ward with my parents, and that that didn't last long. My my whole family at this point is basically ex-Mormon. Um, so, you know, we all got to, I was very fortunate in that I had people who were either waiting for me on the other side who could help me kind of work my way forward, or I had people who were transitioning with me who kind of understood when I said, hey, I'm not going to church today, or hey, I don't really believe this thing or hey i went drinking with my friends like what do you want um so i it wasn't until i was about uh, until about 2018 though that i realized that i wasn't making a healthy transition i was just dissociating from my pain so kind of similar to that spiritual experience i had if we can call it that of recognizing the ego and that there was a deep down self to myself that i'd never really met or addressed um I realized that part of that self that I was still kind of meeting and getting to know was still very much traumatized by the experiences I had as a missionary. So for the first time, uh, I opened up in 2018 with a Facebook post. It was right about the time they made the uh, change that you would that, that let missionaries call their families on a weekly basis. And I saw all the fun people saying how, you know, children these days, they're so weak, everyone needs padded corners and the snowflake generation. Uh, so I, I couched it as basically a response to that. You know, people make these grandiose Facebook posts like people are waiting just to hear their opinion. So I did mine. Um, and I remember, again, weeping through writing the entire thing. And then I read it the next day and I cried a little bit. And then I reread it again and I stopped crying a little bit. And then I reread it after that and I didn't cry at all. And I realized I was processing things. Um, so I opened up about a lot of experiences, a couple of which I, I, I talked about here today, in fact, and, uh, I, I kind of, I got picked up by Richard Osler somehow of Listen, Learn, Love. He invited me to come, uh, interview on his podcast. Uh, I felt like a little bit of an imposter because, um, you know, he, he specializes in working with LGBT plus people who are somehow in an intersection with the LDS church. And I, you know, I, at that time, I didn't really fit into that category. I was just kind of a traumatized kid. So we focused in on that. Um, but after that, I started writing for Medium. Um, I just made these these essays, just threw them out into the ether. And one day, this this young woman who is a grad student, she reached out and said, hey, I have a publication I made for part of my graduate work. Do you want to write for us? Um, and so I was like, yeah, yeah, have all the essays. You can have all of them. And I'm the reason they have a Mormonism tab now. So uh, yeah, I, I wrote over 100 essays on Mormonism. And I hit a point where I was like, I don't really have anything else to say. Um, and I think that point was when I realized I was good. Wow, you you almost wrote yourself back to health. That's that's very okay. inspiring and amazing. Sorry, Landon, I'm talking so much. I'm just like so curious. Please ask Nathan a question. I'm sorry, I'm really uh, monopol monopolizing the situation here. No, I I know you're big into Buddhism. Where when did that come into play, and and how has that affected your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, it's funny enough, I don't, I don't get to talk about this a lot um, publicly because uh, I don't know. I'm, an, I'm a mix of like, I think I'm still kind of a nun, N-O-N-E, 
I don't know if I want to like identify with anything too closely. And I also kind of have that classic Texan individualistic side of like, it's none of your damn business. That's what like that kind of thing. Uh, but no, yeah, I, so I was first introduced to Buddhism in any serious way uh, through those clips that I would listen to of Alan Watts and I would read his books. And so I got a very interesting uh, broad perspective on Buddhism, yoga, Taoism in China and the like, um, and Zen especially. And uh, I, that was kind of the beginning of it. Meditation was always the through line because I think that I went from, for me, the the biggest transition out of Mormonism, I think, was was transitioning mentally from looking for an external structure that I was supposed to live up to and instead becoming more of an introspective person. So instead of asking, what should I be? I started to have to ask myself, what am I? And turned out I didn't actually have good answers for that question. Um, but meditation helped. Um, so that was kind of the through line. It took me through all kinds of forms of Buddhism, all kinds of forms of yoga, Hinduism, Tantra, Taoism, uh, and including into uh, like traditions that people don't really often know about, like uh, Greek Orthodox Christian monks. They meditate. They have a meditation that's shockingly similar to what yogis do with mantra meditation in India. Like they like down to like focus on particular parts of your body. Uh, adopt this particular posture, say this string of words repeatedly for two hours. And then, um, you know, it's 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 fascinating. And I'm sure there's some connection with the Silk Road and everything there, just mutual influence and everything with the Mediterranean and the Indian subcontinent. Um, but I, I got really interested in that. And I think that that naturally led me into psychotherapy, um, into psychoanalysis, especially. I, I really at first enjoyed Carl Jung, who's a very, he's very popular, I think mostly because I think he's very popular with folks who either used to be religious or don't know what to do with religion, whether they were or were not religious, um, because he tried to engage it in a very serious way psychologically. And he gave a lot of reasonable alternative ways of seeing things that I think people could like implement pretty concretely. Um, from there, I got really into tentatively into Freud. I found that he he suffers from a lot of caricatures. A lot of people don't actually understand what he was writing or saying or anything, but he's also very necessarily the 1.0 version of psychoanalysis. So there's a lot of stuff in there that just isn't useful anymore in the same way that you wouldn't pull out your like Apple II or something like that, you know? Um, but uh, I, I got really into Jacques Lacan, um, who's another psychoanalyst. He he was credited with sort of reviving Freud in France. Uh, funny enough, for a, for a very brief time before, I would say before he went off, kind of the deep end. I was a very big fan of Jordan Peterson. I heard him speak in Austin, in fact, um, when his when he was doing his book tour. Uh, I, I'm not a fan anymore, but he introduced me to people like Nietzsche. Uh, he hates Lacan, and that naturally pushed me over to Lacan because I'm a deviant, and if you tell me not to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, like, I'm going to check this out. Who yeah, is yeah, and it turned out I love Lacan, and he hates Jacques Derrida, and it turned out I like Derrida. I don't love a lot of people who love Derrida, but I love Derrida. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I just got fascinated with this idea that there is this, I, I know I've said it a million times, but and it's so hard to really convey it in the same way as like, it's hard to verbally describe the taste of a strawberry, but there's a deep down layer of you that you haven't met. And it's just waiting to create a relationship with you. It may not be a good relationship. It may not be good at making relationships, quite frankly, but it's there and it, it, it pulls the strings of your life in a, in a lot like a Mary, uh, the same way like a marionette. Carl Jung said that um, until you make the unconscious conscious, you'll continue to experience it as fate. 
And that's basically what he meant. Like there's this layer of you that's pulling strings and you don't even know it's there. It's kind of like Pinocchio dancing around and he ironically sings, there ain't no strings on me, but he's a marionette. Like the, the, it's just, we think we're free and we lack the, the language to articulate our own unfreedom as the philosopher Slavoj Žižek would put it. Um, and I just, I got fascinated by that. I, I got fascinated by the idea that there was an unknown inside of each of us that there was a self that we needed to live out and help to, to uh, unfold and evolve in the world, that there were these big influences, even well-meaning ones, that would suffocate that self to death uh, that needed to be addressed. And I just, I wanted to be part of people's journey of sort of unfolding in that way. Have you ever read um, one of the first book club books that we read in The Good Book Club years ago was um, Free Will by Sam Harris. Remember that, Landon? Huh. Have you ever read that, David? I haven't read his book on free will. Um, I read his book, Waking Up, which I really enjoyed. That was yeah. actually my first entrance to Tibetan Buddhism because he's oh. he was he was trained in a tradition called Dzogchen, which is very advanced, um, very interesting stuff for sure. I like him as a meditator, for sure. But no, I haven't I haven't read Free Will. Yeah, uh, we would recommend it, wouldn't we, Landon? <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting. At very much you have to say do i agree with this or don't because he basically says nothing you do is your free will that everything yeah. is already you know going to happen regardless of what you choose so uh makes you ponder that a, a lot and, and makes you think so yeah i you know it's it's funny i i don't know i can't say that i've ever been super interested in discussions of free will mostly because i think i just assumed that we don't have it um right. with the caveat of course that that doesn't necessarily mean you can't change. It just means that, you know, we are expressions of something deeper that we don't really control in the same way that like a wave on the ocean is an expression of something deeper than itself or an apple is an expression of a tree. Um, I'm an expression of my genome in, in many ways, not entirely, obviously, not everything can be reduced to genetics, but um, I'm legally blind because of a gene I can't control that I never chose. Um, so I, I figure that's just kind of the universe we live in. I, I, I've found that my biggest concern has been with um, this sort of something akin to what's been called compatibilism. Um, I don't know if this is strictly what compatibilism is, but I've been less concerned about whether or not I have free will and more concerned about whether or not I'm free to be what I am. And uh, I think that that I think that that's um, probably a good way to just help people who especially because I know some people are very bothered by these debates, it, it it leads to a very existential dread for them. Um, I, I really don't know if we have a good answer for it. And quite frankly, that binary of free will or no free will may not even really make sense in the end. Um, but I, I do like the idea of whether or not we're free to be what we are. And uh, that's kind of what I, I, that was one of the reasons I transitioned out of the church. I um, I had an older sister who's, who's transgender and she was transitioning into, uh, into uh, presenting as a woman and, uh, I, I just saw how impossible that that life in the church would be for her. And I thought that was so incredibly unfair. Um, and I, I just, it was a good example to me personally. And I, I've, I've had a lot of sympathy and empathy for LGBT plus Latter-day Saints, former Latter-day Saints as well, because I think they're such a fabulous example of one of the biggest failings of the modern LDS church, which is again, that we the, the the center of the church is not truth. It's it's not self-expression. It's not even necessarily a personal, a personalized, let's say, relationship with God. It's about obeying an authority figure who's correct in what they tell you. Um, and unfortunately, that authority figure doesn't 
have a lot of good things to say about LGBT plus people, but they still get to be seen as an authority figure. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, you're coming to the book club uh, yes. in a week. This will actually air after that. Yeah. Uh, but we, we are going to record that uh, and put it out on our, our good book club podcast. So yeah. people who uh, want to tune in and listen about what you have to say about meditation, that's something that's going to be out there and something that we look forward to. So I think you said the meditation has really been a, a factor in you and your recovery. And so uh, I think everyone would be interested in hearing that as, as we get there. And so that'll kind of be uh, the, the continuation of this discussion, I guess. The continuation. Uh, we'll be able to, to, to put that out as well. Yeah, I think so too. And I think maybe just um, a last question I might have for you mm -hmm. is if you could just kind of describe how you started your podcast. Like what led to that? Tell us a little bit about that. And also tell us where everybody can find it. Because I think mm -hmm. having heard you talk here, a lot of people definitely want to know more and want to find out more about what you're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so funny enough, uh, I so I was interviewed by Stephen Pinecker of Mormon Book Reviews, our mutual friend. Or our uh, mutual friend. Yep. And uh, he I he just uh it, it was funny we just we met offhandedly uh just did private conversations and one day he was like do you want to come on my show um and so i did and then i came back and again and again and we just built a really good friendship and one day he just like asked me like have you considered making like a podcast of your own um and i was like oh no god no please don't i i don't want to do that um and he kind of pressed me a little bit more on that uh and i found that actually that was something i i would be very interested in so we workshopped names we kind of talked about what it would look like um, and the, the, the iteration that kind of worked out is very different from what I initially thought. I didn't, I, I specialized more in video essays apparently, but I really love that. Uh, I thought it was going to be an interview show. Uh, but, um, yeah, so the YouTube channel is called mind makes this world. You can just find it at youtube.com slash at mind makes this world. It's, uh, that's the easier URL. Uh, again, I only have about nine videos, but I have more content to come. And if you want to read any of my writing, though, I'm, I'm at studionightflight.medium.com. And uh, if you want to find me on social media, uh, I'm on Twitter, at NateSmithSNF. Uh, I'd love to chat if anyone wants to, to talk further or if they want to hear any like recommended resources or anything like that. Uh, yeah. And I will say the video, the, you, you did great videos. Uh, the, the video was one of the highlights as I was watching. I was going, wow, this is really uh, visually uh, well done. And uh, so, and, and then your writing that, that I've heard, I, you were reading your missionary journal in one of them. And, and I was going, wow, this is just beautiful, very descriptive language. So yeah, very well written and, and very well produced with the, with the video. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I, it's uh I didn't realize that that video especially was going to hit such a, a chord with people. But, you know, funny enough, I, I made a YouTube channel that wasn't centered on Mormon content. And yet all of my Mormon content is the most like well performing, apparently. <laughs> uh, but, because your you know. story resonates. It absolutely yeah. resonates in different parts of it with different people. But it's very relatable and maybe in a way that people don't even realize 
wait, that was my experience, you know, by you verbalizing it and delving into it and, and talking about it, people realize, wait a minute, I haven't even processed this, but maybe something like that happened to me. So that's why it's yeah. so important. So we'll definitely put all the links to every way that you can possibly be reached, <laughs> even your home Thank phone you. number, if you want us to. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but no, this has just been amazing. Landon, do you have any final thoughts? And then we'll let Nathan get on with this night. But boy, we're just, we're so happy that you came on and we're so excited that we get another dose at the book club meeting. So I'm very excited. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. I think a lot of people have had shared experiences that you've had on their mission and, and that with leaving the church. And so uh, hopefully people, uh, you know, tune in for the, the good book club uh, discussion that we're going to have with you and, and uh, watch that because I think that's going to be fascinating to see that meditation. And, and it's, yeah. it's a, another way to think after you're out of the church to recover from trauma, as well as even if you don't have trauma to, to focus yourself. Yeah. I, very interesting. If you don't mind my saying, I, I would want to say uh, just kind of going off of experiences, what, what kind of prompted me to speak up in the first place. I, I was fortunate in that I actually did get to meet a couple uh, RMs in Provo when I lived there who didn't get a chance to tell their stories and they went through horrible experiences. Um, and them telling me about that really emboldened me and empowered me to actually speak up. I think one of the barriers that I ran into was I felt like unless I was like a general authorities kid or I was like mugged at gunpoint by my mission president, like some horrific, unimaginable thing, I didn't have a right to speak up. And I, I just I hope I realized that my what I went through on my mission is not the worst that people can experience. It's not the best, but it's not the worst. But I still feel strongly about speaking up about it because I would like to be kind of like what y'all were saying. I would like to be that um, the person that that other RMs were to me who felt like they couldn't speak up. You know, so if if you do feel like this resonates with you, uh, you know, just just feel free to speak. Like speak it up. It's true. It's undeniably true. That's your testimony. It's the one that you can't doubt. So uh, absolutely, let it out. Let it out. That is the message. And you are a champion because I think you are speaking and you have a platform and you are able to speak for people that, like I said, maybe don't even realize that they they had that kind of trauma or experience until they start processing it. And then that leads, leads to healing. So you're definitely a champion. So, Thank you so all much. right. Wonderful, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Landon. Thank you, Nathan. And I guess we'll just say goodbye for now from Mormonish. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.